El Fanboy, episode 36. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles MFR here with you, and this is the 36th edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. Yeah, folks, welcome to this uh, Fanboy Friday edition of the show. Sorry about missing Tuesday. I was sick as a dog, and trust me, you would not have wanted to hear how I sounded on Tuesday. Uh, And aside from being sick, I was also pretty damn exhausted. You see, the night before, I donated my DJ services to a special benefit for hurricane relief for Puerto Rico in the city. It was an awesome night, but I think I damn near blew out my eardrums and I was just shot. Uh, The good news is we raised over 45,000 bucks. Uh, we had a blast. It was a great, great night. Um, thinking about my people in PR, thinking about Tavo Borrego, longtime supporter and listener. Tavo, if you're listening, I hope you guys are doing all right. And just know that we are doing, us New Yorkans up here, uh, we're doing everything we can. All right? So keep being strong and hang in there. Um, but, uh, you know, in a way, it was rather fortuitous that I had to delay this week's show because. It allowed me to see Thor Ragnarok, and now I can give you my thoughts on the Marvel epic that's got everybody buzzing. Uh, As always, I'll avoid spoilers, so don't worry about that. Just going to sort of skim the surface here with the written review for the Splash Report and the video review for ElFanboy.com coming next week. Uh, Speaking of next week, by the way. I'm working on a pretty damn special Halloween show for you guys. So be ready for that on Tuesday. It's funny, I'm kind of slow. Like yesterday, I was just kind of just doing some research, kind of thinking about next week's show already. And suddenly it dawned on me. I'm like, wait a minute. It's Tuesday and it's literally Halloween. And you know me, when I, you know, whenever there's a holiday, whenever something's going on, I try to go big or go home. So I started, uh, well, you know what, just uh, no spoilers, but it's going to be a damn good show. Um, but all right, so now let, let's talk Ragnarok, shall we? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a film that's actually quite hard to criticize. Uh, why? Because it's so damn entertaining. Seriously, it moves at a very brisk clip. The laughs come quickly. The action hits hard. The writing is surprisingly solid. And I can honestly say I sat there for the entire two plus hours with a freaking Kool-Aid smile on my face, like the entire time, literally from the opening Marvel Studios logo with all the shots of the MCU movie so far woven into it, which is still epic to see, by the way, um, to the very last post credit scene, I was thoroughly entertained. And there was just such a multitude of of just stuff being thrown at me the whole time that before I could really analyze whether something was good or bad or weak or strong or silly or smart, there was already something else going on that I had to pay attention to. So it's hard really to like isolate the film's issues because it's, you know, it's, it's not a perfect movie and it does miss the mark from time to time, but similar to like Kong Skull Island earlier this year, it's such a good time overall that you can kind of forgive its missteps. 
it's a solid B plus movie, which is my score for it. It's a solid B plus movie, and I think that you know what what makes that okay is that the movie itself is fine with that. You know, you could tell that the director Taika Waititi, who I get to speak about a lot today, so you know, I'm very excited about that. I get to say that name like 37 times. Director Taika Waititi is clearly not going for high art here. You know, he's he's not trying to revolutionize filmmaking as we know it or reinvent comic book movies or take Marvel to an exciting never before seen place. He's trying to make an exhilaratingly good time at the movies. You know, just two hours of playful mayhem that'll help you get away from life for a while. And he totally succeeds in that. So, you know, when that is your modus operandi, when that is all you want, and it's so clear, uh, you know, you almost can't fault a movie. If, you, if, if, all, if your entire goal is just to give me two hours to smile about, then thank you. Um, like, to compare it to Marvel's two other releases this year, uh, Guardians 2 and Spider-Man Homecoming, I'd say it has more in common with Spider-Man, where it definitely has a sense of humor, but it doesn't allow the humor to completely undercut itself like Guardians 2 did. It's funny, too, because after the last few Marvel movies, dating back to Doctor Strange now, I've gotten some like Marvel PTSD where I'm expecting some lousy joke to come ruin every epic or powerful moment. And there were a few times during Ragnarok where I braced myself. It's like, okay, there's our hero looking epic and about to do something great, but don't get excited because I'm sure it's going to pull the rug right out from under itself and basically mock me for thinking this might be cool. Um, you know, because that to me that happened a number of times in Doctor Strange. It happened a bunch of times in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And it even happened in Spider-Man Homecoming. Um, and it did happen here a couple of times. It did, but the good news is it was balanced out by more than enough genuinely awesome moments that I was able to forgive it this time. You know, the, 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 there are definitely a couple times where they do that same sort of Marvel thing where like they set you up to get excited and then they go waka waka, you know, <laughs> they get like self-consciously jokey instead of just letting you enjoy it for what it can be. But there are some times where the badass hero gets to actually just be badass. And the iconic shot can just be iconic without the person who's in the iconic shot suddenly tripping or getting a pie in their face. You know, so it this one actually kind of has that balance. Um, unlike Homecoming, though, there isn't much here that sticks to your ribs. You know, like that film had some surprisingly potent you know, coming of age, emotional resonance to it. And Ragnarok never really seems to reach for the heartstrings, which is okay. You know, like I said, Waititi is aiming for more, um, just something like a fun ride here. And it didn't seem to want to linger on the more emotional aspects of the story. You know, that, that was his decision and I'll respect that. And honestly, I'm much happier he did that than if he tried to force in some sentimentality just for sentimentality's sake or like guardians too, imply that there are much deeper, you know, like imply, I should say that there are much deeper, more beautiful themes at work here, but never actually let us savor them. You know, so I'm, I'm actually happier. He just, he would rather just not even go there at all than try to half-ass it like some other films have done. Um, but okay. So if I have to think of negatives to share with you, 
Uh, aside from a few jokes that fall totally flat and almost make you wonder like why they were even included, um, I'd say I was somewhat disappointed in Hella. You know, I had high hopes for Kate Blanchett's villain. Um, but, you know, while she definitely seems to be having a blast chewing up the scenery and she looks totally badass when she's in all of her goddess of death glory, there's really not much there for her. It's a common gripe everyone has with Marvel Studios, and it rings true here again, sadly. Uh, you know, she's got a great motivation and a vividly explained origin, but she also seems somewhat sterile and one note. You know, Hela is perhaps an element of the film that would have done better with a little more of a slow burn. You know, give her character some gravitas, ramp up the danger that she represents, make her scenes the only time the film's whimsical energy comes to a grinding halt because she represents the ultimate darkness against the light-hearted adventure Thor is on. Something like that might have made her more interesting and threatening, but as is, her scenes are just woven in with the same zippy energy, quips, and jokey tone as Thor's scenes are on Sakaar with, with Hulk and the Grand Master. So, you know, she just kind of falls into the background. It's just, you know, her, her, she doesn't really stand out. Um, but on the subject of the Grand Master, by the way, Jeff Goldblum is everything uh, you'd hope for and expect here. And that's kind of all I'll say about him. I'm not going to spoil anything. I'm not going to you know go too much further. But just know everything you think of and expect of Goldblum as the Grandmaster and the trailers you've seen is spot on. He's in his own world and it's glorious. Um, another MVP here is the ever versatile and reliable Carl Urban as Scourge. You know, he's treated as a bit of an afterthought in the promotional materials, but man... Urban is great here. He doesn't have a ton to do, but it's a role that allows Urban to walk that fine line he's great at. I've always said he's a character actor trapped in an action hero's body. Because, you know, he's he's 6'1 with a broad chest and he can play the kind of hulking, powerful guy roles he's played in like Pathfinder and the Chronicles of Riddick and Dread 3D. But he's also got impe you know, like impeccable comic timing and a willingness to play smaller, neurotic characters like Bones in the rebooted Star Trek series. You know, the guy's got great range, and he really makes the most of the role of Scourge. It really kind of calls upon all that he brings to the table because he gets to be the big, hulking bad guy who looks crazy and you don't want to mess with him. But he also has some quieter, more nuanced moments and funny moments where you, know, you see like this guy's got so much going for him. Um, just a big urban fan. And he really, he's one of the unsung heroes of Thor Ragnarok. Um, and the last thing I'll say about the movie before we head into this week's news is that I'm a little concerned about the handling of Bruce Banner. Look, I love the character Hulk and I love Mark Ruffalo, but the writers here and the way like Waititi directed him he doesn't feel like the same character Joss Whedon wrote in the first two Avengers movies. He doesn't even feel like the one Edward Norton helped write for The Incredible Hulk. In Ragnarok, Banner basically is written as the kind of like whiny, neurotic character you'd expect to see Woody Allen play in a movie. He's kind of manic with a high-pitched voice. 
and and in a way he almost like reminds me of uh of like Rick Moranis in the first Ghostbusters at times. You know, it's look, it works great for this movie and they kind of have a way to explain why he's different in this movie. I just found it kind of jarring. You know, he didn't remind me at all of the more intellectual, emotionally complex character we've seen in the last few movies, who is a man kind of at war with himself. Um, they kind of like that just he just didn't feel that way at all. So here's hoping that Marvel finds a portrayal of Bruce Banner they want to stick with and then stick with it because this feels like the third version of Banner that we've met in the MCU. But okay, uh, stay tuned for next week because I plan on going way more in depth for the video review where I'll touch on some of the more provocative and thoughtful ideas in the movie script and how it all connects to Avengers Infinity War and more because uh, there are some surprisingly allegorical hefty ideas in Ragnarok even if YTT didn't seem to want to hit them too hard um, but alright time for the week's news Since it is Friday, there's really no sense in talking about last week's box office, so instead, we will look at the projections for this weekend, and you know what, we'll get to see how accurate they turn out to be on Tuesday's show. So, right now, the big wide release that's coming out is the, the uh, you know, the sort of reboot of the Saw franchise called Jigsaw, which we know it's a continuation, but it's their attempt to try to revive the series after they sort of ran it into the ground. Um, so that's coming out uh, basically today, and it is expected to have an opening weekend in the low $20 million range, which will put it in first place easily. Uh, they're predicting that coming in in second place will be Boo 2, a Medea Halloween, uh, which opened last week. They, they think it's going to have like a 48% drop, which is a pretty mild drop, that is. Uh, they think it's going to land in second place with $11 million bucks. Coming up after that is uh, Paramount. You know, they have the George Clooney-directed uh, Coen Brothers-written Suburbicon, which is getting hammered by critics, which is really unfortunate to me, by the way, because I was very excited about that. I'm a Clooney fan. I'm an overall Clooney fan. I don't get to talk about him much on this show because so much of what I talk about is fanboy properties, and he really hasn't been involved with anything fanboyish since uh you know batman and robin and that was that predates all of this nonsense that we do now isn't it 1997 no one was really on the internet there weren't podcasts there weren't all these film blogs so he kind of got away unscathed from that damn movie but either way i rarely get to speak about the guy but i'm a huge huge clooney fanatic and you know th this is going to be the second movie that he does in a row that's sort of a turkey you know the monuments men was kind of a total letdown. Um, and now this, Suburbicon, which I thought had all the right ingredients, great cast, George Clooney behind the camera, a script co-written by the Coen brothers. The trailers look pretty quirky and interesting, but it, apparently it's, it's it's a dud. I may still go see it just out of a sense of loyalty to, to my Clooney and Matt Damon fandom. But uh, yeah, it's it's not looking it's not looking bright. Things aren't looking good. It's got a thirty eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes at the moment. 
Um, and it's looking at an open weekend of a, an opening weekend of around eight million bucks. So that means it would take third place if that actually happens. Also, Geostorm is expected to continue sinking like a stone uh, and take fourth place with seven million. Although honestly, with those two being so close, there's a chance Geostorm overtakes Suburbicon, even if just for the fact that people are looking for escapism. And Geostorm will give them that, whereas Suburbicon will not. So I think there's a chance that Geostorm will do a little better than expected, and Suburbicon will do a little worse than expected. Um, the other big wide release this week is Thank You for Your Service. Uh, you know, there's a chance this one might surprise people. You know, right now it's expected to, to come out in the low single digits, but, you know, people, there is a big audience for these sort of you know, military movies. And, you know, if the type of crowd that loved American Sniper, uh, you know, comes out for this, I think it may surprise people. But um, that's kind of it for the opening box office. Um, you know, we, we will get to have a look at Tuesday to see how accurate those projections were. So now this week's top story centers on our friends at DC Entertainment who have seemingly lined up another movie within their DC Extended Universe using reconstituted pieces of an old scrapped plan. Um, that would be Deathstroke. If you'll recall, uh, Joe Manganiello was hired to play Deathstroke. He was supposed to appear in The Batman. And there was also you know, rumors he might even pop up in Justice League. There was that cool sort of cinematic video that Ben Affleck tweeted out that showed him walking towards the camera and it was happening right around the same time Justice League was filming. So it seemed like there were a lot of big plans for Deathstroke all of a sudden. Um, but then all of that seemed to go away very quickly. Once Matt Reeves took over, suddenly his involvement went up in the air. Hell, a, a month ago there was even a cryptic, uh, cryptic? cryptic statement from the folks who run like the Arrowverse, you know, the Greg Berlanti DC TV universe, they seem to imply that, you know, the films had once wanted them to put all their Deathstroke plans on halt because it looked like the movies were going to use him. But now that seems to be off the table, which implied that it, you know, it looked like Deathstroke was officially sort of out. Uh, but then comes this report this week from The Wrap that not only is uh, Deathstroke still in the DC Extended Universe, but he's getting his own movie. Joe Manganiello will be playing him, and they've hired Gareth Evans, director of The Raid, or at least he's in early discussions, to write and direct a Deathstroke movie. Um, I mean, there's a... Ah, there's a lot to discuss here. Let's see. Um... I, you know what? I think the best way to sort of think about this, because I really, you know, I, I don't think it's a great idea. I think it's one of those things where it'll only work if, ironically, they copy Deadpool. <laughs> it's funny to say that. The reason I say it's ironic is because, you know, it's a pretty uh, open secret that Deadpool was sort of a riff on Deathstroke. That when Rob Liefeld and his partner came up with Deadpool, you know, they made, you know, his name is Wade Wilson and Deathstroke is Slade Wilson. And the, vi the visual designs for the characters were somewhat similar when they first came out. So it really just seemed like Liefeld was trying to come up with a Marvel knockoff of Deathstroke. But the interesting thing is, I think the only way this is going to work 
is if cinematically they copy the same sort of idea of what made Deadpool work. I don't mean turn it into like a, a fourth wall breaking comedy or anything like that, but I mean in terms of keeping it small, keeping the budget low, making it a, a sort of character driven thing um, and promoting it as something unique and different. I think that's the only way this Deathstroke movie can succeed. Make it a rated R action movie for grown-ups. Don't spend more than 60 or $70 million on it. And then I think Warner Brothers will be very satisfied with this decision. Uh, assuming that the, it's even legit. You know, it ha- I don't know that it's been confirmed yet. Um, you know, the, the, there's a lot of different DC movies floating around, which we'll get to in just a second. But, you know, assuming that, that this is going to happen... I think the only way it works is if they make it like a low budget R rated, um, you know, character driven comic book flick for grownups and let Joe Manganiello be a badass. And, you know, I don't even know how they're going to make that work. You know, the character, as far as I know, isn't really an anti-hero. He really is more of a straight up villain. You know, he's not like Deadshot who, you know, Will Smith plays Deadshot as more of an anti-hero and you can make a Deadshot movie which they're supposedly thinking of doing also. Um, but Deathstroke, you know, I don't think you can really go the anti-hero route. So I don't, I don't, I'm very curious what sort of how they're going to tackle this creatively. But, um, you know, which th- this whole thing just makes me think in general about DC and, the, and their vague plans for the future. So let's talk about the, the sort of slate that Deathstroke is going to be joining, shall we? Because depending on who you listen to, there's anywhere from four to like 17 DC movies in some stage of development at the moment. So let's try to keep up here. Let's try to recap. Right now, the ones that we know are definitely like the boots are about to hit the ground or they already have hit the ground and production has begun in some facet is Aquaman next year. We know Shazam is supposed to start filming soon. We know Wonder Woman 2 is absolutely getting done. We know that Gavin O'Connor signed on to direct uh, you know, Suicide Squad 2, and that looks like that's definitely happening. But then there's the ones who are kind of more up in the air where we know they're happening, but the when and the you know the where and the when of them all is still kind of up in the air. That would be Flashpoint. That would be the Batman. That would be the cyborg movie that's never happening. Um, there's Green Lantern Corps. Then there's also Booster Gold, which got announced. There's Batgirl, which got announced. There's Nightwing. There's Black Adam with Dwayne Johnson. There's the rumored Man of Steel 2. There's that Gotham City Sirens movie, which I keep thinking is gone, and I keep feeling like we've heard is gone off the slate. But supposedly, somehow, David Ayer is still planning on making it. I, I, I'll, I'll, I, I'll see that with Cyborg as a double feature when that one comes out. There's the Joker origin movie directed by Todd Phillips, the one that's being produced by Martin Scorsese, which is like a separate sort of Elseworld type tale. There's that Harley Quinn and Joker movie with Margot Robbie and Jared Leto returning to those roles. There's the Justice League Dark movie. And then there's this, now there's this Deathstroke. So were you paying attention there? Let's see, that was 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 
11, 12, <laughs> Jesus, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 DC movies that are supposedly on the way. Um, now, something that's going to weigh heavily on the decision to make any or all of these movies is going to be Justice League's box office performance. And I don't know if you guys have been paying attention, but yesterday the first round of predictions hit the web. Uh, I'm going to preface this by saying I am not going to go too deeply here. You know, the movie is still three weeks away. These projections tend to be sort of lowball. Um, and on top of that, we're going to have plenty of time to discuss Justice League's box office uh, when the film actually comes out and to compare it and to really sort of, you know, figure out what happened here or either be surprised incredibly by it or totally miserably depressed by it. So I'm not going to go too deeply into it right now, but for the time being, uh, it is projected to make somewhere between 110 and $120 million for its opening weekend. All I'll say about that figure is that if it somehow holds true, it'll be devastating. That will be one of the saddest things that could happen to Warner Brothers, to DC Entertainment, and what this film was supposed to be. Because let's not forget, folks, I hate to you know break this into like Marvel versus DC stuff. I think it's sort of childish how you can't talk about you know one movie's success without talking about another movie's failure, and it's always the two being pitted against each other. But let's not kid ourselves. Justice League is supposed to be, you know, their Avengers, right? The Avengers opened up to $207.4 million when it opened back in 2012. If we were to adjust that for inflation, who knows what that number would even be in today's dollars. But it was $207 million. Um, so if somehow the Justice League stays in that 110, 120 area, that's going to be very, very depressing for everyone involved. That said, I don't think that's going to happen. Remember, Wonder Woman at one point had been projected to make $65 million, and it ended up making nearly $40 million more than that. It made around $104 million domestically in its opening. So these projections can be wildly off. Even Spider-Man Homecoming over on the Marvel end of things, they were projecting $100 million and it made like $130. So we've seen them be as much as $30 to $45 million off the mark here. Um, and that could mean that the movie makes closer to 160 or 170 million, which, by the way, wouldn't even be that impressive either when you consider that Batman v Superman made 166. So if this doesn't squash Batman v Superman's numbers, that's a whole other story in and of itself, considering this is supposed to be, you know, the, the, the you know, double the importance of Batman v Superman. But again, we will have plenty of time to analyze this. Uh, for the time being, uh, as it relates to Deathstroke, as it relates to the fact that there's 18 different DC movies on the way, I think Justice League is going to have a big bearing on which ones of those ultimately see the light of day. Because right now, Warner Brothers has been very spoiled. They've been very, very lucky and spoiled by the fact that the goodwill towards the DC Entertainment brand, towards these characters, has been so high 
that even with tepid word of mouth and bad reviews, the films have made great money. And Wonder Woman is the first one to actually get the positives across the board and make money. But the other ones still made a ton of money despite either being divisive or being outright disliked. And that shows you that the public loves these characters. There's a there's a built-in interest for Superman, for Batman, for Wonder Woman, even for Suicide Squad. People seem to love the DC brand. You know, the, the Suicide Squad did amazing numbers and you know because it, it had the Joker in it and it had Harlequin and it it was built it was set in that Batman universe and people loved the Batman universe. So Warner Brothers has been spoiled and very lucky by the fact that of their first four movies, uh, the first three were divisive or bad, and the fourth was liked, and yet they've all made a ton of money at the box office. Uh, if Justice League underperforms, it's going to give them pause to say, okay, well, you know what? Maybe these people aren't just going to eat up everything with a DC name on it, and we need to start being more selective and more careful about the movies we make. Because honestly, like if I'm them, I'm not making all these movies. I'm not even allowing these to get reported on. I'm keeping them. I'm keeping them under lock and key. I'm right now. If I'm Warner Brothers, if I'm DC Entertainment and Jeff Johns and Diane Nelson, what I'm thinking about is what are my safe bets? What are my sure things? What films can I create to rehabilitate the brand to continue the momentum from Wonder Woman? What can I do that are going to be sure things? Stuff like Deathstroke, stuff like Gotham City Sirens and Cyborg and Booster Gold. Like, really, come on. The, the, those are movies you get to once your, once your series has been so widely loved and so well received that now you can start taking those risks. You know, that's why Marvel took all these years to suddenly get to Ant-Man and then to get to Doctor Strange and get to Black Panther. And again, I hate to be comparing the two against each other because they're totally different companies and I don't mind DC's approach. I mind DC's quality, but not their approach. But at this point, it just seems like they're getting way ahead of themselves thinking that audiences are going to buy into these kinds of you know, movies about tertiary characters that no one's really ever heard of if they can't even get fucking Justice League right. Um, and on the subject of Justice League, before we move on, earlier this week there was a huge kerfluffle, <laughs> a huge uh, outrage about the film's running time. I know it sounds insane to be even discussing this. Like, really? We've gotten to that part of film critique where now the running time comes under scrutiny. But you know what? It did come under scrutiny. Um, the film is coming in at a running time of 159 minutes. Um, now, right off the top of my head, that number doesn't really bother me. There have been a lot of films that have been great an epic and phenomenal around that running time. You look no further than Star Wars A New Hope. Look no further than Star Wars The Force Awakens if we're you know, thinking about Star Wars movies. There have been a lot of films that in two hours covered a lot of ground, introduced characters, introduced whole new mythologies and villains, and basically set the stage for all kinds of things in just a two-hour span. So... The running time on its own doesn't really tell me anything about the film's quality. 
What I am intrigued is what I'm hearing about how much was cut out because it doesn't sound like this film was built to be a two hour movie. It sounds like a film that was built to be almost three hours. And there's rumors that the original edit, the original runtime was 170 minutes. So that's two hours and 50 minutes. That means that there are 50 minutes on the cutting room floor somewhere. Now, if you'll recall, with Batman v Superman, the original cut of that movie was three hours. They cut off a half hour of that just prior to release, and we ended up with a theatrical cut that a lot of people just rejected. And certain folks feel that the Ultimate Edition rectified a lot of the mistakes, and they feel that the Ultimate Edition that came out, which reinstituted that missing half hour, was actually a far more complete movie and might have been received better. So if we're thinking about that as a comparison, if taking out 30 minutes from Batman v Superman changed it from being a pretty good movie to being just a mess, uh, what the hell's going to happen? What has happened to Justice League with almost an hour cut, with 50 minutes cut? What the hell happened to Justice League and what are we about to see here? Um it takes me back to something I've I've mentioned before about what uh, the good folks at Batman on Film have said, what uh, what what Bill Jet Ramey has said, where it really is starting to seem more and more like Warner Brothers is just saying, "Fuck it, <laughs> fuck it." We've done everything we can do. We've poured as many as much time and as many resources as we can afford into getting this thing into workable shape. At this point, short of delaying it and really just redoing the whole movie from scratch, this is as good as it's going to get. So let's just get this out there, get it done, let it make what it's going to make, and let's move on. And in that regard, a two-hour running time makes sense because they want to make money. They want to just move past this already and just try to make as much money off of its back as they can so they can move on to their future plans and really get into, you know, full on into the Jeff Johns, Diane Nelson, John Berg era of DC Entertainment. Um, Because so like so two hours, the reason I bring that up is, you know, two hours is a strong financial move. Because a two-hour movie can be shown many more times a day than a two-hour and 50-minute movie. So by making it two hours, they are maximizing the film's profitability. Um, and I'm just, I'm thinking about what, 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 you know, what, what was cut from those 50 minutes. Uh, I didn't make any notes here, so this is all just off the top of my head. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about the stuff that's been cut and I've been thinking about all the different rumors and reports that have come out in the last year and sort of here's what I think. I think a lot of what's of what's been cut out is a lot of the buildup for the future because if you recall the original idea here was to have this film be part one of two. And the original idea here was Steppenwolf was a stepping stone for Darkseid. And what I think they've done here is since they know that Justice League 2 is basically on indefinite hold, no matter what that old quote from, uh, who was it? 
It was it was J.K. Simmons who you know, there's a quote making the rounds now, which by the way it's become incredibly impossible to find when he made this quote, but he apparently said like late last week or early this week that you know they're working on a script for Justice League too. Uh, I'm pretty sure he said that during the set visit last year before everything kind of went up in the air. But regardless, Justice League 2 is up in the air. From everything I'm hearing from people I really trust, Justice League 2 is not even on the horizon anymore. Right now, their sole focus is Aquaman and Wonder Woman 2 and the Batman and trying to make really good standalone films. They're not worried about another team-up movie for a while. The next sort of team-up thing we're going to see is Flashpoint, and that's still several years off. And then Justice League 2 would happen after that. So Justice League is not happening anytime soon. So I think a lot of what was cut is anything that was building towards the second half. I think anything that was, you know, that any subplots that had to do with Lex Luthor trying to get Darkseid into the mix, I think... It really just all of the connective tissue was cut and they're making this movie just lean and mean and it's going to focus on just our heroes introducing this villain and dealing with how they deal with this villain and then it's over. Um, you know, and, and it works hand in hand with Joss Whedon's earlier sort of statements that he's made in years past about how he how he fe- how he feels that a film should be able to stand on its own and not really be just a setup for something else. He hates cliffhanger endings. You know, he he's even decried my baby, my Empire Strikes Back, which is my all-time favorite Star Wars film. You know, he doesn't think films should be structured in a way where they're only great if you also are ready to watch the next part. So I think one of the things he came in, he he came in and clipped branches like he was trimming a bonsai tree to basically streamline this movie so it could really just be about its own self-contained story. Um, And I also think that, you know, Zack Snyder has been prone to a lot of sort of contemplative navel gazing with Man of Steel and with Batman v Superman with inefficient sort of storytelling where there's just, just there's too many subplots. It gets bogged down in MacGuffins and Man of Steel 2. You had the Codex, which really ultimately added nothing to the overall story. And Batman v Superman, you had the whole running thing about where do these bullets come from and the African raid and all this stuff, which really just muddied the waters and it distracted from what the movie was really about. So I think they just took a sledgehammer to anything that was not the main story. They were like, listen, we have a lot of ground to cover here. We don't have time for contemplative navel gazing and exploring MacGuffins and subplots that don't matter. We're just going to streamline this story, make it as exciting as we can, make it as as enjoyable and, and filled with laughter and excitement as we can, and just get this thing into theaters so it can make us some money and we can move the fuck on. Um Speaking of the enjoyment of the film and making it, uh, you know, making it a hit amongst the masses, uh, I did get a chance to listen to some of Danny Elfman's score yesterday. I also pre-ordered the Justice League soundtrack last night. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard it yet, but so far they've released one complete track called The Hero's Theme. Uh, There is another one that's available on Apple Music called Friends or Foes. Uh, which I heard, and that one contains the uh, the once teased 
John Williams Superman theme in it. Uh, it happens very quickly, and it's not the exact thing. He, he clearly, you know, I think he hits a minor note at the end. Instead of playing the majors, he hits the minor just to kind of use, uh, you know, a musical lingo on you. You know, he plays a variation of the da 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 da, da but it's not exactly like that. But you can hear it in there. It's worked in there. And, you know, if you listen to the score so far, you know, it sounds like it's it's a much more sort of classic feel than the Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL scores that they did for, you know, Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. By the way, I love the Man of Steel theme, so I'm not criticizing, but it really feels like they're trying to build this movie to play a little bit more on your nostalgia and a little bit more for your love of all things DC. I mean, there's elements of the hero's theme that really reminds you of Danny Elfman's work on the 1989 Tim Burton Batman movie. You know, they, they seem to be trying to make this film into a love letter to all things DC, as opposed to what it was originally going to be, which was just, you know, more of the continued sort of, this is something new and totally different uh, that, you know, the, that the Snyder movies were. This is more so, now they're opening it up, they're allowing some nostalgia, they're trying to make it more of a fan-friendly thing uh, to bring in the, the, the mainstream and the wide audiences, which I think is smart. I do think is smart. Uh, so I just wanted to mention the soundtrack because it sounds like it's going to be pretty good and pretty old school Hollywood. Um, so if you haven't heard it yet, go check out Danny Elfman's Heroes theme. And the final DC bit that I will hit up here on the 36th edition of the Old Fanboy podcast is the fact that at the Chinese premiere for Justice League, Gal Gadot confirmed the retcon of her character. If you'll recall earlier this year, I was talking about the fact that Wonder Woman, the movie, really sort of puts a new spin on the character and almost turns something that was fairly prominent in Batman v Superman into a plot hole now. Um, and she basically uh, acknowledged that. She said that at the Chinese premiere, she was asked about it, and she said, look, none of us knew exactly, exactly the backstory of Wonder Woman. And once they decided to shoot the solo movie for Wonder Woman, and we started to dig in to understand the core of this character, we realized that actually there is no way that Wonder Woman would ever give up on mankind. The reason why she left the island was because she wanted to make their lives better and safer. They are her calling. So I'm giving you a very honest answer, but it was. Sometimes in a creative process, you establish something that is not necessarily the right decision, but then you can always correct it and change it. So Wonder Woman will always be there as far as she's concerned for mankind. So yeah, remember, I spoke about this back in June. It made no sense because uh, in Batman v Superman, they one of the plot points is that Diana... Get, turned her back on humanity a year, you know, a hundred years ago, around the time of World War One, and she did not want to be a part of, you know, get involved with mankind's affairs any longer. And it isn't until she sees what's going on with Batman and Superman and Doomsday that she makes the fateful decision to put on that golden corset again and go fight crime. Meanwhile, sorry. Meanwhile, in Wonder Woman, uh. The whole thing ends on a note of 
I'll, I'm here to stay. I'm here always. And I am, you know, the, the heroine of all time. Um, so it, now it just made it seem very much like uh, she was never really gone. Why would she be gone? And Gal Gadot has basically confirmed that, that the idea of her not always having been around and the idea of her turning her back on humanity after the fact that she just watched humanity do, you know, Chris Pine's character, Steve Trevor, had just given the ultimate sacrifice and actually that's what gave her the power and the strength to fight back against Ares, seeing the very best that mankind can do. It never made sense that she would then say, well, fuck humanity. So I'm glad they fixed that. And I'm even more glad that Gal Gadot acknowledged that they fixed that. Um, so moving on, moving on past DC, past Justice League, past all of that stuff. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what's going on on the other side of the aisle. Uh, there's not a hell of a lot to report about Avengers Infinity War. But for those of you who love Groot, uh, there was a bit of a small update from Mr. Vin Diesel about Groot and how he's going to be handled in the next two Avengers movies. And here's what he said, Vin Diesel, about playing Groot. Yes, I am playing teenage Groot. I'm having a blast with it. It's really, really fun. I can't say, you like how I'm doing it in a very like deep Vin Diesel voice? I can't say too much about him, but he's coming of age, so you'll see the teenager find a mentor to look up to and to model himself after. The character's great, and the films are going to be great. This is a terrible Vin Diesel impression. We've got such an amazing cast and a great pair of directors at the helm. Why do I sound like Columbo? This is ridiculous. The Russos allow the actors to jam on scenes together to the point where it just feels great and everybody gets their moments. So anyway, um, when he's not blowing the directors, he's talking about the fact that, you know, that's how Groot's going to be handled. It's going to be a coming of age sort of thing. Um, so for those of you who like Groot so much, that's what's up with him there. Sounds interesting. I wonder who his mentor is going to be. I have a feeling it's not going to be uh, someone in-house on the Guardians team. I have a feeling it's going to be another one of the Marvel characters he gets to interact with. So I wonder which character he's going to take to. Uh, so let the speculation begin as to who the mentor to Groot will be in uh, Avengers. By the way, do you guys catch that one little that little uh, glimpse of um, Jeremy Renner as Hawkeye where he seems to be donning the, the Ronin attire that the character would go on to wear in the books? So that's going to be interesting to see how they do that. You know, they've been doing some fun, interesting stuff with Ronan, uh, with, with Hawkeye ever since uh, Avengers uh, Age of Ultron. He's become a far more interesting and complex character. And he keeps on like wanting to retire, but then, you know, because he has this family to tend to, but then he keeps, he feels that call to action is just way too strong. So it's going to be interesting to see the next evolution of. Uh, of uh, what I don't even know his real character's name anymore. I forget. I was almost going to call him Bucky Barnes, but that's Winter Soldier. Whatever Hawkeye's name is, that guy, he's going to be uh, Ronan this time around. Um, we were talking about Mr. Vin Diesel. So what's the other big thing he's involved in? Really, the only other big thing he's involved in because anytime he tries to make a movie that's not in uh, the Fast and Furious franchise, it falls on his face like that last witch hunter. Blah. 
and that uh, failed attempt to revive Triple X earlier this year. So, on that fast and furious kick, uh, he announced, or he seemed to heavily imply, that Justin Lin is coming back to finish the franchise. That he's going to be there for the finale, the uh, the nine and ten. Um, look, I uh, I can't get it up for the Fast and Furious franchise anymore. I've sp- I've spoken effusively about the series in the past, not because I think it's great, but because you know I appreciate what they did with it. You know, I think Justin Lin deserves a ton of credit for taking a series that seemed to be totally dead in the water after the first two movies and suddenly create something that became one of the most, you know, one of the biggest runaway successes in Hollywood with international audiences, this great, huge, diverse cast. You know, they were able to like salvage from, you know, two mediocre to bad movies something that would go on to be this huge runaway success. And, you know, and I think they deserve credit for that. You know, he injected the series with a little bit of like a, of a, of a mythology with like two different timelines going on and things that circle back to happen several movies prior, which shows a great deal of planning and, and mapping out of a, of a more complex story. You know, Justin Lin deserves a ton of credit, especially because he didn't even start the series. It's not like it's his, it's not like it's his baby. But somewhere along the way, he really took ownership of the characters, really took ownership of the material, and he took it to that next place. So them getting him back now, because remember, he sat out seven, he sat out eight, because, you know, in theory, he was moving on to do his own, you know, moving into new areas. He made Star Trek Beyond, and in general, it seemed like Justin Lin was ready to sort of move past, but um, for whatever reason... He is now reportedly in advanced talks to finish up the series. Because for all intents and purposes, 9 and 10 are the end of the Fast and Furious franchise. We know that Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham are going to get their own spinoff together. And who knows how many sequels that ends up getting. But for now, in terms of the proper Fast and Furious saga, uh, 9 and 10 will be the end. So, you know, I think it's a smart move. You know, it's Justin Lin has been good for this series. Clearly, he understands these characters and he knows how to make these movies work. So fine, you know, bring the guy who is responsible for your greatest successes, successes back and let's let him finish this his way. So who can argue with that? Justin Lin will be returning to Fast and Furious. By the way, just a kind of a quick little shout out. Actor John Ortiz, who is a very, you know, he's a great undersung hero character actor, Latino, who we've seen everywhere from Miami Vice. He was in Kung Skull Island earlier this year. He was in, uh, I'm pretty sure he was in like Carlito's Way. John Ortiz has been in a ton of stuff and he has just joined the cast of uh, Bumblebee, the the, uh, the spinoff of Paramount Pictures Transformers. And he's also just signed on for a revenge thriller called Peppermint. So just kind of want to give John Ortiz a shout out there. I said a few episodes ago I want to start supporting me hint there a little bit as they make big moves. And good for for uh, Mr. Ortiz for, for landing a couple of high-profile gigs this week. Um, something that's interesting is Karen Page in The Punisher. By the way, there's two things about The Punisher that I want to go into here. 
Um, but apparently she was not originally part of the Punisher series. They weren't originally going to have her. Um, and it, it, it mainly came because the showrunner, Steve Lightfoot, decided, you know, he really loved the chemistry between Karen and uh, and Frank. You know, uh, that's that's actress Deborah Ann Wool and John Bernfall, the way they interacted with one another in Daredevil season two. And it was because of that that he kind of asked for permission to use her in this series. And, you know, he, he has some comments, you know, going around. He said, you know, Frank is a closed off military guy. And this is a woman he treats like an equal more than anyone else. You know, they really do have this very, like, interesting dynamic. Um, and it really is. It's, it's interesting to see how they were kind of willing to play that by ear. A lot of times Marvel gets a lot of flack for being sort of rigid in its plans. But it looks like Steve Lightfoot and the folks over at Netflix were able to like, you know, there is wiggle room there. And they were so, you know, they were they were such fans of the of the way those two characters interacted in Daredevil season two, that that's why she's going to f- you know figure prominently and appear at all in the Punisher. Now the thing I find funny about the Punisher, by the way, is it finally got a release date. You know, Marvel has been purposely coy with it. You know, they keep doing this thing where on all the teasers, right around where it gets to the time where they're going to show the date, it gets like scratched out. And they've done this on the posters. They've done this on the teasers. They've done it on the released official images. They've been like purposefully obtuse about when uh, the Punisher was going to hit on Netflix. And wouldn't you know it, (laughs) they have it coming out the same day as Justice League. That cracks me up. Yeah, you know, they always say like, oh, there's no rivalry. What rivalry? We're all, you know, we're all here to support each other. And when one comic book property does well, we all do well, blah, blah, blah. Then why are you opening a show on the day that a rival studio is opening theirs if there really is no rivalry? And listen, I'm not saying that, that the Punisher is going to put a dent in Justice League. But to me, it's just very telling because they know that there's definitely a rabid audience for the Punisher. We know that he's one of the more exciting elements of Marvel's Netflix universe. So, you know, they they know that there's going to be people who are going to be anxiously waiting for this movie to hit so they could spend all day binging it. And they're basically ensuring that anyone who is, you know, who's been waiting for months and months, or pretty much waiting since Daredevil season two last year, to see more of the Punisher, now they're going to have to ask themselves on November seventeenth, huh? Do I stay home and binge the Punisher like I've been waiting for for the last year and a half, or do I go see Justice League? Let me check Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> and then ah, Justice League is getting hammered. Maybe I'll stay home and watch Punisher. Like they're creating a bit of a dilemma where even if it's like five percent of a crossover of the audience, there are going to be people who decide to stay home, uh, and 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 they'd rather binge that than go see a questionable Justice League movie. And listen, I'm not I'm not trying to predict that Justice League is going to get bad reviews, but. At this point, all I can say is with everything I've heard, I would not be surprised. I'll just put it that way. I will not be surprised if this thing is received in a way that's similar to Batman v Superman. Maybe it'll be closer to Man of Steel, which it had like a 52%. It was more of a split movie. So maybe this one will land more in like the 40s. 
But either way, you know, I don't think this movie is going to be embraced and beloved and be a true successor to Wonder Woman, which was, you know, had like in the mid 90s and everyone was raving about it and fans loved it and critics loved it and everyone loved it. I'm pretty sure Justice League is going to end up somewhere between Batman v Superman and Man of Steel. So therefore, it's not going to be this emphatic word of mouth. I have to rush out and see this because I hear it's amazing type of picture. And for the for the cross section of fans who are dying to see the Punisher and are interested in Justice League, Marvel has now given them a reason to stay home that day. So that's that's pretty dirty. That's I'm like, wow, guys, so much for putting all that work out there saying that, oh, there's no rival. We run rivalry. We're all friends here. We're happy when the other side does well. Yeah, right. You could have waited to release Punisher in December or on a weekend. Or yeah, yeah, December. December would have been good. December or January would have been a fine time to release Punisher. But no, open it on the same day as Justice League. That's just pretty fucking funny. Um, now, I get to talk a little bit more about Taika Waititi. We should have a drinking game about how many times I say Taika Waititi, Taika Waititi. So... You know, he's out there making the rounds, doing the press for Thor Ragnarok. And people keep asking him, you know, oh, you want to stick around? You want to do more Marvel movies? And, you know, there's different, you know, there's different answers depending on the time of day. And that's the thing. That's how this works. I remember when my aunt used to be in town to do junkets for her movies. You guys don't realize what a marathon these things are and why the actors and directors involved in these movies sometimes get a little loopy and the answers can be somewhat all over the place. It's because you literally, you sit in a room for like the entire day and you sit in that little chair with the cloth back and the cloth bottom that has the logo of the movie on the back and reporter one by one comes and sits in the one opposite you and they all ask you the same fucking questions all day. Oh, what was it like working with blankety blank? Oh, how fun was it when this happened? They all ask the same softball bullshit questions. And you've just got to sit there and try to make it sound interesting as you reply, even though you really just want to go, ah! So anyway, uh, Taiko Waititi uh, was asked about whether or not he wants to do Marvel again, another Marvel movie. And at some point early in the week, he had said, yeah, I had a great time working with them, basically. And he said that, you know, I would want to do another Thor movie because he's my favorite character and I don't care about the other ones. Then later on, another reporter asked him, would you like one? And then he said uh, a different answer. This time he said, in all honesty, I reckon I could probably bring something pretty unique to any of the franchises. So I'd love to see Black Widow. I'd like to see Black Widow as something crazy and a bit funnier than we expect it to be. Because we know her story and it's very sullen and very dark and her history is very dark. But... What's the funny version of that? What's the more entertaining version of that? By the way, that kind of circles back to what I was saying about Thor Ragnarok. You know, clearly he has a, what he wants to do is just how can I make this as entertaining as possible? That seems to be his overall goal when he's making a film, which, hey, that's, that's a fine goal. Some people are trying to make high-minded art that makes you look at life differently afterward. And some people just want to give you a great time at the Cineplex. And that seems to be his goal here. But staying on topic with Black Widow, what a terrible idea that would be. Um, I don't think anyone wants a funny version of Black Widow. 
with all due respect to Mr. YTT, who I don't even really think was being all that serious. I'm just, you know, he's answering the same question over and over again. So this time he says, fine, I'll, I would make a funny Black Widow movie. I don't think he's actually trying to pursue making one. Despite all the clickbait headlines, you'll see YTT wants to make a, a funny Black Widow. Um, so I don't know why I'm out of my mind right now. I had some coffee during the break. The break that you probably didn't even realize happened. And um, we're just a little loopy right now. So, I don't think he really wants to make it. It's an interesting idea that he would do it. But let's just hope he doesn't. Because I don't think anyone wants a comedic Black Widow movie. Uh, In terms of what we do want, uh, we want more of what lies in the shadows what we do in the shadows i should say and there actually is some movement on there uh for those of you who saw it if you haven't seen it get your ass to, get your ass to moss uh, no, get your ass to netflix and check it out um right now they're trying to develop a a a, a u.s version of it a tv series about the vampires it would be kind of like a spin-off TV series that would focus on them, which I think would be pretty awesome. And that mockumentary style that the film had, it would be like The Office with vampires. Uh, yes, please. But there's also, you know, there's been talks of a sequel that would center on werewolves. And it looks like there is some movement there. While he was out making the rounds for Ragnarok, he was asked about it and he said... It is slowly developing at the slow pace Jermaine Clement and I usually work, which is excruciatingly slow. So while we do these things on the side, we do slowly chip away at that thing and write down ideas, but we usually write down like one sentence a month. So in other words, it looks like there will be a What We Do in the Shadow sequel, which right now they're calling it Werewolves. Uh, but it's probably a fair bit in the distance. Um, so, all right. So we've discussed what he would like to do, what he's working on. What's something he wouldn't want to do? Well, with the talk of what what a success Ragnarok is and the fact that it takes place out in the cosmos and in outer space and yada, yada, yada. Uh, people have kind of thrown his name in the hat to make a Star Wars movie. Um well, I can't say I would like that. Uh, not because I, I'm not a fan of Taika Waititi, because clearly I am a pretty good fan of Taika Waititi. But I kind of feel like his talents would be wasted there because clearly they already tried to go with like the more auteur, off-the-walls comedic directors when they hired Lord and Miller to do Han Solo. And we know how that panned out with that, you know, with them getting fired two weeks before Principal had wrapped and then bringing on Ron Howard to finish it, um, which is just going to be called Solo, a Star Wars story. Um, So he was asked about it, and here's what he said. He said, that particular franchise seems really hard. Uh, There's not much room for someone like me. See what I mean? He even knows that, you know, someone like him, and he said, look, I like to complete my films, which is totally like, holy, shots fired. Um, and he also said, I'd be fired within a week. So listen, you know, he knows, he knows, he knows that 
people now that he's going to be an in-demand director people are going to want to see him take a stab at star wars it sounds like he knows better than to even entertain that idea because he wouldn't be able to make the kind of star wars movie he would likely want to make so anyone who's pulling for that i think we're better off hoping that perhaps james gunn eventually moves on from the guardians franchise and maybe let uh, Taika Waititi direct Guardians 4 or something set in that realm because he's good with that sort of genre, with that sort of subset of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, another bit of news that's making the rounds, which I'm just very like, oh, please, no, is, um, you know, there's a company called Morgan Creek. And Morgan Creek recently bought a bunch of film rights to all these different franchises. They bought the rights to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. They bought the rights to Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, The Last of the Mohicans, True Romance, Major League, Dead Ringers, Young Guns, Nightbreed, and more. And it looks like they're going to try to mine all those properties in one way or another, be it TV series, you know, be it reboots, be it remakes, be it far-flung sequels. And one of the ones they're talking about is Jim Carrey's Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Uh, no, no, no. Let's not reboot this. Unless you're going to make it a sequel that actually stars Jim Carrey, let's leave this alone. That was lightning in a bottle. Back in 1994 when Jim Carrey burst onto the scene crossing over from TV stardom and in living color and suddenly he came alive on the big screen with Ace Ventura that was a revelation that was a once in a lifetime moment in time when Jim Carrey did that the 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 combination of his talent with that character with that director it, it just it it you there was no way to repeat it and they tried with Ace Ventura when nature calls which was also a very funny movie in its own right but like that was it. Let's leave it alone. So unless you're going to get Jim Carrey, unless you're going to get the original director back, I think it was Tom Shadiak, if memory serves. Unless you're going to get them back together, let's leave it alone. But Morgan Creek sounds like they want to do something that includes a baton handing where, yes, they would get Jim back, but it would pass it on to like a long lost son or daughter. And it's like, come on, no, no, no. And they've also even thought about a TV series. Um, you know, they, they've it's 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 within the realm of possibility. One of the producers says, because it's episodic in nature about a pet detective, it also lends itself to a traditional single camera series franchise. Oh God, please no, please no, just don't let it happen. Um, the Jim Carrey thing that I am excited about at the moment is the Jim and Andy, the Great Beyond documentary that's coming to Netflix later in November. Uh, that looks like it's going to be pretty special. If you have not yet seen the trailer, it is available on Netflix. It is available online. It basically does a deep dive on old hidden footage, footage that's been locked away ever since Jim Carrey portrayed... Andy Kaufman in Man on the Moon. Uh, because I don't know if you guys know this. It was a big story at the time, but at this point, the movie is kind of old. Um, you know, he, he kind of went off the deep end doing, uh, you know, intense character work where he more or less feels like he became Andy Kaufman for the production of the film. Um, 
So there's a lot of behind the scenes footage. And what's interesting is, you know, Andy Kaufman was a very sort of divisive figure because to comedians, he was amazing because he was so committed to his bits and he seemed to be all over the place and he didn't care if the audience was big or small, if he made you uncomfortable and squirm or if he made you laugh. He was just in his own sort of gonzo world. And when Jim Carrey channeled that energy, uh, at times it was hilarious and at times it led to big fights on set and it led to all kinds of weird awkward situations and the documentary plans on sort of de you know, delving deeply into that production into what it was like where Jim essentially became Andy Kaufman um, and the trailer is an interesting line in there where he says like you know the studio like hid all this footage away during the production because they were very scared of him being perceived as a dick and being perceived as an asshole and when you're selling a movie you know, you want everyone to think your star is likable and funny and you want them to enjoy him and see him in the best light possible. And they were convinced that this footage would make people go, God, I hate Jim Carrey now. So it's going to be interesting now to see it as a postmortem, especially now that he's in this zone now where he's almost like, you know, post career. You know, when you hear him in interviews lately, he talks about it like, you know, he's I'm not here. I'm not a person. I don't exist. I'm just an I'm a collection of energy and you call me Jim. He's in this very like metaphysical place lately where he's just kind of, you know, he, he can no longer be tethered to the realms of man, uh, which, by the way, I know it sounds like I'm mocking him. He's in some weird zone, but I do love Jim Carrey and I, I respect where he is in his spiritual growth as an artist and as a person. But, you know, he's in an interesting place. So it's interesting to have him in this form uh, participating in this documentary, too. It'll be I'm excited to hear what he has to say, what stories, how he sort of thinks back on that bizarre period in his life. Uh, he shared a great story, by the way, on the Norm MacDonald show, which, you know, there is the YouTube video version, but there also is the podcast version, which you can get on all your podcast apps. Uh, if you have a chance, listen to Jim Carrey's interview there because he's got this interesting, this hilarious story, really, uh, of during production of Man on the Moon, he was invited to the Playboy Mansion for some sort of big anniversary party that Playboy was having. And he said, okay, but I'll only come as Tony Clifton. And Tony Clifton was one of Andy Kaufman's characters. Uh, that he played in the movie and, and he played on TV back in the day. So Hugh Hefner and the people there at Playboy thought, oh, that'd be great. It's going to be Jim Carrey as Tony Clifton. This is going to be a total win. So Tony Clifton shows up at the party. Hugh Hefner welcomes him. He introduces him to everybody. He gives him a microphone. Tony Clifton's going bananas all over the Playboy mansion. And then about an hour and a half later, Jim Carrey shows up. And Hugh Hefner is standing beside Tony Clifton. He looks at Tony Clifton and he looks at Jim Carrey and suddenly the whole situation gets turned on its head. He doesn't know who this Tony Clifton guy is. They call security because it looks like they snuck in Bob Zamuda as Tony Clifton, which is an old trick that Andy Kaufman and Bob Zamuda used to do because they would both wear the same prosthetic makeup and play the character identically. So they could basically be, be interchangeable as Tony Clifton and they pull that stunt on Hugh Hefner. It's fucking hilarious. And I think there might be footage or audio of that in this documentary. So I cannot wait for that. 
And another documentary that is on my radar that I have not yet seen, but I have to at some point sooner rather than later, is Spielberg. I keep hearing amazing things about it. Uh, you know, I've heard it from Aaron Varola, longtime listener and supporter. I've heard it on Facebook from friends of mine from, from the filmmaking community who just talk about how inspired they are by it. And I'm a huge, huge Spielberg nerd. So I need to finally find one of these upcoming nights to sit down and watch it. Speaking of Mr. Spielberg and things I have to watch, uh, I actually just, I, I rented from my mother. I borrowed from my mother her copy of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Because in, in, in truth, I haven't seen that movie since I was in single digits. All I have are like the vaguest recollections of what happened in that. I must have been five or six years old. So I'm going to have like basically like a Spielberg double feature one of these nights where I watch the documentary and where I watch Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, my recommendation for what you guys should watch this week, if you have not yet, is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, uh, directed and written by Shane Black, and it features Robert Downey Jr. pre his big Iron Man comeback. Uh, this is like, you know, this is on the trail towards his comeback, but he hadn't quite hit it yet. But it's Robert Downey Jr. and Val fucking Kilmer together with dialogue written by Shane Black coming out of their mouths. It's just glorious. It's glorious. I'm going to read you the back of the DVD. And then I'm going to finish off this referral. It says, <clears throat> They say love and money don't mix, but you can't blame Harry Lockhart for trying. He's been whisked from a life of petty crime to Hollywood, where he'll audition for the role of a movie detective and be tutored for the part by a private eye. Now all Harry has to do is convince the dream girl he meets that he's an actual detective and try not to stumble over the corpses as real life abruptly gives away to the real. Uh, it's that does it no justice. It's basically like a funny, you know, subversive spin on like the LA noir genre. It's a crime noir movie, but that's very, very funny and skewers itself. And the chemistry between Val Kilmer and Robert Downey Jr. is unbelievable. So definitely check out Kiss Kiss Bang Bang if you get a chance. And also remember, Shane Black is considered the creator of Lethal Weapon because he was the writer for Lethal Weapon. So the man knows a thing or two about buddy comedies. And this film is like the 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 best modern day buddy comedy that I can think of that really nails the dynamic of having two characters who are sort of very different from one another and how they bounce off each other and, and get themselves into some bizarre situations. It's just an awesome, awesome flick. I remember renting it from Blockbuster. That's how long ago this movie came out. It came out in 2005. I saw it in 06 or 07 on a whim. And I'm like, oh, okay, Shane Black, Downey Jr., Val Kilmer. Yeah, why not? Let's check this out. And I was floored. I instantly went and bought it because I'm like, this is a film that deserves to be on the mantle. So check out Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, all right? Um, 
And that's it, folks. Stay tuned. We got some exciting stuff coming up next week uh, with the Halloween-themed edition. There's going to be the video review for Thor Ragnarok. There's going to be the written review that goes up on Splash Report and plenty more. If you get a chance, please leave a five-star review for the El Fanboy Podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends about it. Tweet about it. Share it. Let's keep this baby growing. For everyone who's taken the time to go to Patreon and become an official patron, thank you so much. I'm going to put your money where your ears are next week with an epic Tuesday show. Thank you, and until next week, adios. Adios.